Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name is Richard Porritt and I am joined, as always, by Steve Anglesey. Hello, Snowflakes. I hope you can hear the bin lorry, which has just arrived outside my um, my abode. Yes, we're not underwater, listeners. Um, we are in back in our bunkers for another week. I think next week we're going to be back and in person, aren't we, Steve? But this week, due to um, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are back and doing it on the old Zoom. So we're a little bit underwater, and our apologies for that. But don't worry, our very expensive kit, which is currently sat doing very little, will be put to good use. Um, in uh, in the coming weeks, and we've got a, a, a massive show again this week, haven't we, Steve? We've got Ian Dunt joining us in a few minutes. Of course, I'm sure you will all listen to the Romaniacs podcast, which Ian is a major part of, of course, after you've listened to ours, everyone's second favourite podcast. So we'll be chatting to him about Scotland and Scottish independence and all that kinds of thing um, shortly. And then uh, Matt Withers has been talking to uh, Niall Griffiths, is that right, Niall Griffiths, who's a, who's a, a columnist and writes for the New European every now and then, and uh, he writes about his jaunts across Europe, and I believe he's going to be chatting about his uh, arriving in Romania without any belongings or money. So I, think should... actually, I think actually Niall is going to read his piece that he's written oh, for the, oh, right. okay. the edition of the New European, so there you go. So that is, it it's going to be a lot of fun, so that's coming up very shortly as well, but uh, Steve... Another interesting week. What what has caught your eye this week? Well, I've, I'm busy putting together my application to ah. be the, the the government the new uh, number ten spokesman at a hundred thousand pounds a year. Well, which, I, I mean, um, what I'll say to you is there's no there's no point um, because I've I have already been approached um, and I've I, I've been told that I actually need to put a CV in. Although I would like to say for the record, I was the host of the National Roofers Association, AGM, a few years ago, um, which is a gig that's gone down with, you know, Hendrix at Woodstock and Radiohead at Glastonbury. Um, so I, I think I, I wouldn't bother, mate, honestly. Well, it, I mean, I don't know whether this is, um, I don't know whether this is true or not, but in one of the reports on this, it, it did say that they were looking for somebody female. Um, and, well, um, I mean... Um, which you know, which would rule you out. Um, well, but it's, uh, yes. 
But obviously, I don't. I mean, I don't know who they've got in, who who they've got in mind. Who do you think would be would be good to to sort of? Well, if they're, if they're absolutely convinced that they need a female, I yeah. do actually fancy uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, as I have mentioned on this podcast before. So that I would definitely be tuning in. So they um, could bring her over. Um, yeah. Annunciata Reese Mogg, she seems nice, doesn't she? She could do. She could tell the government. You know, she could relay what the government was doing, and then tell poor people how to um, how to save money. Did you see her? Did you see her saying, you know, you were wasting money on oven chips when you could simply buy a kilogram of potatoes? Uh, see that. I, mean, I think it's really easy, isn't it, to tell poor people how to be less poor when you're very, very rich. Um, yes. it's. I mean, if you combine that with what her brother said about people at Grenfell, it's, you know, it does present a rather um, unfortunate view of the, the Rees-Mogg family and their, their sort of lack of empathy. Um, Adele is somebody who is used to, to selling a, a very sad sad story, isn't she? I think she could do you, know be she, do you know how she would start every single press oh. briefing? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> I think the problem with Adele is she seems to be obsessed with turning up at her ex-boyfriend's houses and knocking on their doors. Uh, I mean, she's done this for at least two or three songs that have been hits now. Um, you know, whereas whereas some, you know, Brett Anderson from Suede always falls back on gasoline and council houses and things like that. And and there are lots of drug references in Oasis songs. Adele seems to be a bit stalkerish. So I'm not sure. I think they might come back and bite her on the backside a little bit. My absolute favourite, though, for the job, it would be um, would be Fleabag. Um, yes, she would be she would be absolutely brilliant, wouldn't she? You know, she would. That would be great. We'll have, we'll, have, we'll have coronavirus under control by Christmas. There's nothing to worry about, and then side look to to the other camera. It would just be uh, it would be fantastic. I think. I would um, worry about her. There are certain activities that Fleabag enjoys that Boris Johnson also enjoys. I'm not sure those two people should really be working in the same office together. Um, that would be a tremendous third season of Fleabag, wouldn't it? If the if the the if the hot priest was um, was replaced by the, the the not hot prime minister, that would be sensational. I was also thinking, and, and yes, it would of course be great to have. Uh, you know, more, more females in positions of power in the government. But I was thinking, why, why, why stop diversity then? Why not puppets? I mean, I think Roland Rat would be perfect for this job. <gasps> that would be amazing. Tory fans. <laughs> Hello, Tory fans. <laughs> and then you could have Kevin the Gerbil would, would come on and seal up the, um, the, the Welsh vote. He was... Oh, no, yeah. was that, or was that Errol the Hamster? I can't remember. I was, I was the gerbil, definitely, was Welsh. I'm pretty he sure. But, the, but also, you can imagine him arriving outside number 10 in his pink car. Um, <laughs> pink car, rapping. Pink car, yeah, rapping. I think he's got all the demographics. He's got the young vote because he does rapping. Um, he's got the puppet vote. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think he probably needs a deputy as well. And then it's a toss-up between Golden the Girl and Ed the Duck. Yes. I think Gordon 
had had he's got more gravitas, hasn't he, than Ed the Duff? I think definitely more gravitas, but he was a bit more tetchy. If things didn't go his way, he was he could he could turn nasty, Gordon. Whereas Ed the Duck, I think, was a bit more laid back. So I mean, it's a choice for it's a choice for Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane uh, and Boris Johnson, of course. But I, I think Roland Rat is, is not a bad choice, and he brings a decent entourage as well, and he's got staying power, you know. Well, I'm, I'd be worried about Roland Rat's Twitter after what's happened to Wiley as a, as another as a sort of you know proto grime artist. The, the Archant's lawyers, the New Europeans' lawyers, would like to say that um, there is no evidence that Roland Rat is in any way anti-Semitic or ever yeah, has been. That, that is true. Um, I did have a little look, by the way, at Glassdoor. Do you, you know what Glassdoor is? Don't you? It's Glassdoor one of those stones that you accidentally walk into, isn't it, when you think... It's a, Glassdoor is a website where people talk about their uh, places that they work or have worked, and they share sort of um, interview questions that they were asked and stuff like that. And, uh, and I was looking... I didn't know to, about this. So is there new European on there? <laughs> because I want to... Let's hope not. Because I want to get this job. And um, I looked at... Um, you know, what questions you are asked if you want to join the Conservative Party, because, of course, this job is being advertised on the Conservative Party website. Yeah. And um, it says, this is, this is a, 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 a woman who was inter, inter, uh, interviewed for a job at the Conservative Party. Uh, I interviewed uh, at Conservative Party, brackets, London, England. I walked into a room at CCHQ, and was sat down with two very nice people for what felt like an informal chat. The bonus was that the room had a big bust of Churchill in. <laughs> first question she was asked was, you get called at 10pm on a Saturday night saying a member of the Young Conservatives has been posting inappropriate tweets. What do you do? I think that's a, um, I think that's a question that might come up uh, quite a lot. It's, it gives you pros and people talk about the pros and cons of working at, at their jobs. And I'm going to read you some of the pros that people who work for the Conservative Party have put down. Pros, lots of gin and good times with Tory babes. That's one. Uh, flexible hours, tons of drinks, parties. Um, makes a real difference to our country when you win. The cons yeah. are long hours, lower than average pay, poor employee support, egos, chaotic office full of messy paperwork, Conservative future are annoying, Abuse from friends and associates, massive egos, stupid ideas. But hey, there is lots of gin and good times with Tory babes. So that is, um, so that is good. I've, I have said on numerous occasions that um, having been to countless um, party conferences over the years, the Tory party conference is always more fun than the Labour party conference. And that is because of the gin. It's the gin and the booze. You know, it's the, there's lots of free booze. I'm not going to talk about any babes, Tory or otherwise, but there's definitely there's definitely more parties at uh, Tory party conference. So I can see there that there is there is absolutely uh, you know some of those some of those pros are, are fairly obvious. I think to me, well, um, it's hey, definitely the job to go for. I can see that somebody has somebody's entered the forest. This is exciting news. It is. Um, I, Ian Dunt is with us. Ian, welcome. Are you there? Hey, guys. It's fantastic. Um, well, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course, um, you are uh, an integral part of everyone's second favourite podcast, uh, Romaniacs. <laughs> is this our first? This is our first crossover. It is. It oh is. wow! This is the Remain Cross finally happening right in front of our eyes. <laughs> 
bit like Superman versus Batman or something like that. This will be a bit more successful than that dreadful outing. But, um, <laughs> but, but thanks so much for joining us. And um, and you're absolutely right. We should have done this long ago. And, of course, uh, myself or Steve would love to come on Romaniacs, which is far more professionally put together, but perhaps not as funny. Um, <laughs> it's not as – I mean, look, since lockdown, all professionalism on Romaniacs has gone flying out the window. And now it is just the same as every other podcast, which is – a lot of digital squeaks and squawks while everyone tries to get their house in order. Well, indeed. Um, but at least you had the professionalism before lockdown. Yes. Um, <laughs> we, didn't like we didn't need lockdown. <laughs> Lo-fi since day one. That's been us. <laughs> so how the hell are you? It's very nice to hear you. And it's great to have you writing for the, the print edition of The New European, which we're going to talk about. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be on there. I'm, I'm not too bad. I mean, I just sort of finished the book and I mean, lockdown was sort of quite nice. Uh, like the timing of it was quite good for me because I was still writing to finish my book. And so I had no social life and I frankly resented very much the concept that other people did have a social life. So when everyone else lost their social life, it was like, oh, OK, well, welcome to welcome to my world, basically. <laughs> and now I've finished it and I want to go out and that's much harder. So it's a bit more dispiriting. Well, before you start, and why did why did you why did you plug that book? Oh yeah, well, it's coming out. It'll be out in um, early September. It's called How to Be a Liberal, and it's a sort of you know a reminder of the values that Western civilization is based on, like you know freedom and reason and moderation uh, and an attack on tribalism and the sort of you know nuanced idea that we might not want to give those values up altogether, and that generally in the past when we have given up those values, things have gone really rather terribly wrong. So yeah, that's out, that's out in September. Thank you for the, thank you for the opportunity to plug it. Uh, so far, oh. I've plugged a podcast, an article, and a book, and I've been on here for like two minutes. This is extremely <laughs> I, I do expect um, to be able to come on and plug my book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Ian, is there anything you're selling on eBay at the moment that you want to... Um, how you, you've written about the uh, you've written about Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson and um, his his tremendous uh, tremendously successful peacemaking uh, <laughs> visit to Scotland this week. I mean, it, it, it seems fairly clear now, doesn't it, that the, the SNP are on course to to win really big in the, the Scottish Parliament uh, elections next May. Uh, what's going to happen? If that happens and Boris Johnson still refuses a, a second referendum, bad, bad things. I mean, there's no, you know, there's there's no scenario. I can't see a scenario right now in which Scottish independence isn't the most likely outcome. So there's the there's the two parts, right? So you, I, I think your analysis of next year's elections is, is spot on, and like, all the polling would suggest. SNP are going to win big. And of course, because they know that, they're going to drive forward on a sort of pro-referendum ticket so that the result will be seen as a very strong mandate for another referendum. And most of the polling on a referendum result as well would suggest that that is, is a pretty compelling idea, right? Like, I mean, we've of all the polls since Boris Johnson became prime minister, only two of them haven't given a majority to uh, pro-independence. Um, in the in the public and the ones that didn't it was by one percent right so well within the margin of error 
So it's pretty clear S&P are going to win. And it's pretty clear at the moment that it looks like they would win a referendum as well. So if Boris, so Boris Johnson can accept the referendum mandate at that point, he says he won't. I mean, it's quite a difficult moral or democratic case to say that you shouldn't offer a referendum at that stage. But he says he won't. If he doesn't, it seems to me that things just get even worse. Because you basically just played into that um, narrative that the SNP have had for years of, you know, Westminster is not a respectful partner. It is our jailer. You know, it is the guy that keeps us locked up in this dungeon. And now that you've got the Scottish people saying we're supporting a party that wants a referendum, they're still not going to give it to you. Like, there's no argument that we that we uh, have control over our destiny here. And for that argument is extremely compelling because it will be demonstrably true at that juncture, right? So then, when you do eventually have a referendum, and you can't fight this stuff forever, like eventually it will be it will take place. It then becomes basically impossible to win. So that's, that, those are the two pathways that I see, and both of those pathways seem at the moment to lead to the same place. Is the, could, the, could this have been avoided in some way? I mean, when, <laughs> when, once Leave won, Scotland was always going to be on the, a collision course with Westminster, wasn't it? Could, could they have done something different? Yeah, well, this, so I think there's two things there. I mean, the first one is, what was the outcome you were aiming for? Like, what kind of Brexit did you want? Um, you know, soft or hard. And the other one is the manner in which you proceeded. You know, like, did you treat them with respect? Did you recognize that other people um, in sort of, I mean, you know, within England as well and within Wales as well, but certainly demonstrably in Northern Ireland and in Scotland had voted a different way? Did you show them respect? Like on that latter part, they abs- you know, we've lived, you know, <laughs> the three of us have really lived through this over the last few years. That is not the way in which people who supported Remain were treated. They weren't treated as people who had a different idea for the country. They weren't offered any concessions at all. Instead, they were treated, and, you know, the phrase rings out. We know it really well because it was on the front pages of the newspapers again and again. It was from the words of ministers again and again. It was from ERG MPs again and again. It was the enemy of the people. So what can you do? Like, if you're someone in Scotland, what can you possibly take from that? If they keep on saying that any degree of criticism, any degree of scrutiny, any degree of just wanting the institutions of parliament and the courts to be part of the process, anything that didn't just sign up to their de- deranged hysteria over this issue meant that you're the enemy of the people, then it follows logically that the people in Scotland are a different set of people to the ones that they think that they are governing. I mean, that's just by virtue of their own words. That's necessarily the case by virtue of what they said. So, of course, it therefore helps the independence movement. There was another way, and at the beginning, if you remember, you know, way back 2,000 years ago, at the beginning of Theresa May's administration, where she started visiting sort of the devolved uh, areas and, so, and went, she had meetings with Sturgeon, she had meetings, um, you know, in Northern Ireland and, and said, well, look, okay, well, we have to come up with something. And there then was a point that you could say, look, we do this as one. We do, we, we take soundings, we actually create some kind of process, a transparent process, very much like the one the EU had, of saying, what is it that everyone wants here? And let's see if we can keep everything together instead of the sort of rank, demented tribalism that we actually saw. And then the other part of that, of course, is what kind of Brexit do you deliver? Do you deliver soft Brexit? Do you deliver hard Brexit? And, you know, we know very well which of those avenues they decided to pursue. Ian, my mother's side of the family are are Scottish. um, And I spent a lot of time in Scotland as a a boy. My grandfather was a very proud Scotsman, even though he was living in Yorkshire. Um, In fact, Scotsmen, much like Yorkshiremen, get prouder the further away they get, I think, from from where they were born. Um, uh, But I I always get the feeling that that 
the the majority of of the Scots are desperately trying to find a reason not to become independent, to be part of what is. I mean, you know, I have no allegiance really to to, to Britain. I think it's an economic union, but they, they would love it to work for them. Um, but but perhaps it just doesn't anymore, and it, it never is going to. I, 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 I feel that there is the flag wavers, of course, and one thing that my grandfather said to me was always be wary of people who are waving flags, but it's not simply that, is it? It's not just um, patriotism in whatever that means. There is something more now, and I think that has come from Brexit. I mean, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and... I mean, someone asked me the other day at a talk on sort of nationalism, you know, like Orban, Trump, Brexit, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, do you consider the SNP to be nationalism? And it's like, well, ultimately, yeah, as a party, that's where that movement comes from. It is a, it is a nationalist movement. But you just, you know, we decide as, as a country, Great Britain, how far we're going to vindicate that idea. And at the moment, on a, on a basic logical level, you really have to grasp around for a strong argument to stay in the union if you're a Scot. Uh, and there is one, by the way, there's the economic argument. The economic case for nationalists is harder now than it was before Brexit, mostly because, you know, Scotland relies on the EU single market and the British single market. And the British single market is worth more to Scotland, about four times more in trade and jobs than the EU one is. So it, that was an easier case right back in 2014 when Britain and the EU, it was all the same market. Now that you have to make a choice. And the economic, if it was just pure economics, pure trade, you, you would necessarily go with, with the British one. Apart from that, all the arguments have been dismantled, right? Like unionists used to say, look, you've got guaranteed, stable, authoritative government in Westminster. How, the, how on earth do you make that case now? Like, how could you possibly do it? Like, the government in Westminster is composed of, like, it's a bag of gibbering maniacs. Nicola Sturgeon, on the other hand, has shown sort of firm reasonable, moderate, sensible leadership throughout this thing. If you remember that, the morning of the result, the morning the Brexit referendum result came in, she was the only person that morning, apart from arguably Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, who looked like they knew what the hell was going on, like they had a plan, that they yeah. projected a sense of confidence, that it wasn't just utter chaos and everything falling apart at the centre. And she's continued to present herself in that, and she's done it over COVID as well. Like, I mean, she has limited powers on public health, but she's used them sensibly. She's used them well. So what argument do you go for, right? All the arguments that used to be used for the union are basically falling away because of Brexit, because of Boris Johnson, because of the crazed lunacy of the people that inhabit uh, Downing Street. And the only one really left is the economic case. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And is it, I mean... It is a compelling case, but um, but nonetheless, yeah, I guess uh, the heart sometimes can be more compelling than than the head, can't it? Um, I mean, what, if 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 you and perhaps you want to dodge this question, that's fine. But if you were to be able to advise the whole of Scotland, what, what, what would you say? What would you say? Leave or stay? I don't know, man. You see, this is okay. So that goes to to like so that that then goes into like a personal thing, and that's like from we're all friends here, and it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Look, so here's the thing. So like, I, I grew up. So my my family is like a sort of immigrant British family, right? Like my mum's from Latin America, my dad's uh, British. The families like that in England quite rarely associate strongly with with England. They mm. use associate with with britain because britain like the concept of britain to me when i was growing up and definitely for my mum and, and partially for my dad no actually quite strongly for my dad too was it's many things in one 
you know, represented by the flag, but many things can be together as one. Whereas England just seemed uniform. I know this isn't true, but that's just how it seemed and how, you know, the, the kind of emotions you have around your country as you're growing up. It seemed uniform and frankly, it seemed quite, you know, white. And, and so for me, I, I don't associate tremendously strongly with England. I associate very, very strongly with London and very strongly with, with Britain, but not England. So for me, for me, and this isn't, you know, this is, this is not an argument that has any pertinence to a Scot. This is not the basis upon which I suggest they make decisions. It's just this is how I feel about it, is that for, for me, the idea of Scotland going is quite kind of a weirdly traumatic thing because you're, you're getting rid of the national unit that I associate with, and, and I have mixed and quite odd feelings about the one that remains. So it's, it's, kind of, it's hard for me to answer the question. I don't think that has any pertinence to, to the debate, but just for me personally, that's why it's difficult. Yeah, well, I, I think, well I'm, in, I'm in a very similar position because I, my, my um, father's side are, are, are Irish, Republic of Ireland, and um, although my mum was born in Belfast, she is actually from a Scottish family, and so I was surrounded by people who weren't English. As a, you know, I was like the first mm. English person from Yorkshire. I've, I've managed to become a professional Yorkshireman um, in the process. But, um, but I, like you say, you, you identify with London. I identify with Yorkshire, and now out in the East very happily. And, and in fact, did when I lived in London for many years. You know, identify. But to be, I can't ever imagine waving a St George's Cross or a Union flag mm. and being proud of it. I don't quite understand where that comes from. So nationalism is a weird thing. Um, I guess, but uh, but it, 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 it's certainly fascinating. Steve, Steve are you around? So I think you dropped off there. You, I, did you die I, or something? I didn't. I didn't drop off. I just I, I dropped out. That's <laughs> <laughs> why I've been desperately filling Ian, basically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that what that was? I was quite I was quite entertained by the professional Yorkshireman description. <laughs> Steve is back. Thank goodness for that. I was uh, I was happily with my feet up, letting you two chat. You know, letting the intellects chat, and then I saw it, Steve had gone. <laughs> anyway, there we go. Um, Ian, have you, have you come to actually, you've, yeah, obviously, as you said before, we and all of our listeners have truly lived this entire thing and all the things in between, like COVID, et cetera, and, and, and sort of um, and, and read everything in with the, with the sort of Brexit-coloured glasses on and what does it mean for, for Brexit and what does it mean for the future of the UK in or out of the EU? But during that, have you come to like any of the Brexiteers? Is there any that you've got a soft spot for? Well, the trouble is that most of the ones that I admired and got on well with ended up coming over to remain. Um, so, you know, like the, basically the sort of the liberal leavers like Oliver Norgrove and, and, and people like that. And, and sort of Roland. Um, and there's, there's sort of about five or six and they're these kind of, they're these fascinating, they mostly come from, from sort of IT. They, they, they have this sort of quite structured view. They, they like the single market. They like the customs union. They didn't like the EU. They're worried about centralization of power. You know, all like perfectly like properly respectable opinions, you know. Um, and they didn't lose their heads with tribalism after 2016, you know, in the way that, so for instance, Daniel Hannan, right, would have been part of that group before the referendum. Yeah. But once the referendum happened, he just completely lost his mind and drifted off into the rank sort of tribalism. So those guys that kept their heads, yeah, I mean, we developed friendships. It was nice to have someone that didn't agree with you on this core issue that you could still get on with. But 
sort of inconveniently for me, they all became Remainers. <laughs> like, but it was about two years later, it was, you know, with Theresa May's deal with it, which is like, well, this is just rubbish. And, and I'm not getting my single market membership, which they're all pro. Um, so eventually they just, they just sort of gave up and just like reluctantly to remain. I mean, they weren't coming on marches and you would never see them dead with like an EU flag or anything like that. But ultimately it was annoying because I couldn't point, I couldn't say, you know, Oh, I've got friends that are leavers or I couldn't point to people within the leave movement that were still being reasonable. So no, I mean, not really. Then there's that other group, which is, you know, which, which are hard to define, which is basically people that were Remainers, but accepted, you know, that basically they would have taken any deal. So, you know, people like that, Ken Clark would be like the ultimate version of that, right? Where, you know, he was just like, I will vote for any deal you put in front of me, which I don't think is the right position. You know, I think you've, you've got to have like a, a, a greater concern about the national interest than just saying I'll vote for any deal. But nevertheless, these were guys that, you know, obviously didn't go into the tribalism and, and also got it from both sides, right? Like they got it from the Remain side, but they got it from the Leave side. They were friendless. And for those long, brutal years where you're getting, you know, when every time they went from sort of parliament down to, um, you know, it's been so long since I've been there. I can't even remember the names anymore. To College Green, where you do media interviews, you'd be getting shouted at by, by everyone. I mean, at least everyone else had one side or another they were being shouted at, not both. So I admired them, even though I disagreed with them too. So there's some. I mean, the, the, the place I can't, you know, I, I, I'd be lying if I said I had any friends in the sort of like ERG level crazy because I just, I, I, there's just so little intellectual consistency or meaning and it's just so brazenly hypocritical and 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 such a form of just vandalism like for your own sense of sort of self-worth and an ideology that i just there's there's very little grounds there for me to form a meaningful relationship i'm sure and those are the people who are going to be completely heartbroken to see scotland leaving the union right it's it's not that's not going to matter to mark francois at all is it well, yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, that must be right, right? Because I don't see any, I mean, that's part of the story, right? Like, I don't, they say yes. that they're unionists. English exceptionalism, yeah. Yeah, but they just, they don't really care about Scotland. If they do, they do a very good job of concealing it. They don't care about the opinions of anyone there. They don't seem to have any, when they talk about Britain, they, it's pretty clear to me that, that, you know, they're talking about England. And even then, England without the cities, basically, you know, rural England. And, and it's not even really rural England. It's like a dream of England, yeah. basically formed after the war. Um, so I don't see that, you know, they claim to be union. I don't see, if, if you really were a unionist, you would do something pragmatic and practical and something that goes against your own interests in order to preserve it. And I see very, very little of that from any of them. Was there ever a was there ever a time during your sort of long nights tweeting in the press gallery that you thought Remain is going to come out of this okay that there's going to be a second referendum that this madness might not occur? Yeah, I went to. I remember at the very beginning, right, like uh, like in the first, you know, in, in twenty sixteen, the second half of twenty sixteen, when I did sort of speeches on this, I'd say, you know, I think we've got like a five percent, ten percent chance, but you know, it's a chance and we should take it. And I think at the height of it, probably at the height of the collapse of Theresa May, um, I thought we're probably on about 50-50 here. Like, this can be done. Um, and it, I think we, we, we weren't far off being able to do it. Like, it was, never the major, it was never the most likely outcome ever at any stage. But, you know, if I still think if there'd been more cooperation in Parliament and outside of it, between people that wanted a soft Brexit and people that wanted another referendum, 
that you know this thing could have been done and also of course you know between parties remain parties you know between i mean labor i say it's a remain party you know it was obviously basically being held hostage by corbyn yeah. um and the lib dems and, and i mean basically that could have been done you look at those indicative votes now those indicative votes in parliament we are definitely going over the past now but what the hell those indicative votes in parliament um, they they weren't going to do anything on their own, and they you know they, Theresa May would have done everything she could to ignore them. But nevertheless, they would have at least provided a moral case. We would have been able to say, look, there is you know support here for an avenue. And if people that supported the customs union, supported the single market, were willing to lend their votes to to people's vote guys, and if people's vote guys were willing to lend their votes to single market and customs union guys, I think we could have got somewhere. We could have formed a proper coalition. And those opportunities weren't taken they weren't taken in parliament i didn't really see them taken in sort of campaigning groups and i think that's partly not just but it's partly one of the one of the things that did us in um we, we, I, ian i don't want to keep you for too much longer but there is there are a couple of very pressing questions i think we need to ask steve i'll answer the first one in fact i'll ask you i won't answer it <laughs> what about, the way it well, works, yeah. I, in fact, I've already answered this question prior to Ian joining us, but Ian, have I got any competition for the number 10 spokesman gig? Because I quite fancy it. I mean, are you putting a CV in? Yeah, yeah, um, not so much, no. I mean, I'm amazed. I was looking at that, job. I was just like, who on earth wants to do that? I get like, I, 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 okay, so... I, I, let me phrase it this way. Like a hundred grand is a really, really good salary. It's more than I earn right now. It's a good salary. However, y you'd have to be a journalist to do the job. Stephen Bush did a, a thread on this recently on Twitter. Where I just think he got it spot on because you have to be a journalist to do the job. You're in a very, very, very public facing figure for a very, very, very inept government. So you're going to be out there every day just eating this crap that you're going to get served in a way that the public really recognizes and it's the end of your journalistic career so great you're, you're making you know 100 grand for what two years max and then your whole career is over so i just don't see why anyone wants that job and that's not even getting into the morality of you know what it is to try to sell the message of a government that has no consistency and no no responsibility at all. I'm managing my swearing here. Okay. Also, also, Ian, I I'm sort of twenty years into journalism now, and, and Steve's been around for about thirty or forty years now. Steve, I think, is a journalist, don't you? And uh... well, it's, it's nearer <laughs> to thirty than forty. Let's. <laughs> but it is. God, God, it's a long I time. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, whoever gets this job is going to be suddenly scrutinised very heavily from the people who they have been drinking and partying with for the best part of their career, there is going to be some dirt dug. I don't know anyone who's clean enough to take this job, in the, certainly in Fleet Street or in the lobby. I mean, I know secrets that would curl your hair, and I'm sure you do as well, Ian. I mean, who's brave enough to take the job? Yeah, but then they always – but they do I – mean, they do do this, right? I've seen – Colleagues dogs bite dog these days, though. You know, when I was a when I was a, a, a cub, dog didn't bite dog. It does now, doesn't it? Yeah, all the time. And, and I've seen really good colleagues go over to work in government comms, and I can't. You know, it's like you know. I, and I look, and I especially get it if you know if you've had like you know you're happily married, you've got some kids, you don't really want like the proper all night merciless low income life of a journalist, and you just think, well, you know, what? I wouldn't mind making a, a decent salary. And, you know, being able to clock off at 5.30, I, I get it, right? But there's always a part of me that just is sort of like, 
you you you've gone to work for the baddies <laughs> like you know yeah. i'm quite a like a basic image of this i was like well, we're the goodies i know the journalists <laughs> don't live up to that and they're the baddies and you've now gone off to i don't know what was skeletor's castle called uh, whatever castle that was he-man's wasn't grass castle gray school he-man no maybe not i think you're right it was castle gray school no, Grayskull's uh, He-Man's. Was it? He-Man's oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, it, Grayskull doesn't sound great, does it? But apparently that was the big one. So God knows what Skeletor's place was called. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so a bit of me kind of does always, there's that part of me that's just like, yeah, that's kind of unforgivable, even if I understand why you might have done it. It's a, it's a weird one, because I have been, believe it or not, I have been offered, not this job, um, <laughs> but I have been offered sort of roles, you know, within within government and 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 it's just like yeah but <laughs> you know because because actually you said it's all right to clock off at five o'clock this guy ain't clocking off at five o'clock you know a very good friend of mine told me he'd had two days off this year <laughs> and he wow. works in number 10 two days off i mean that is you know you, there's you, you've probably got less time and when you go to a party they don't go, oh, tell us some secrets. They punch you in the mouth, you know. So <laughs> it's it's definitely not a good idea. Steve, we've kept Ian for far too we long. There's one pressing question one, that you really want to ask. I t- well, I'll tell you what, on the previous point, I'm just going to say two words, and those two words are Chloe Westley. Uh, <laughs> Come and do some poetry, soon. Chloe. Please do some poetry for us. He's going to do it in verse, <laughs> I think. And then, the, and then the, the, the last question for Ian is... I'm looking. I'm looking at Viz Comic, and I, I learned from this that you, you, Ian Dunn, are a big fan of camping, but you're scared of beavers coming into your tent, and <laughs> and it, so you erect an electric fence around your tent every time you go camping. Is this? How did this? Is this a childhood thing? How did this start? I don't know. I mean, I love the the censored version of that that you just you, you basically by stripping it of every swear word in that section, you've the comedy is gone. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I seem to pop up in biz quite a bit. Like, and it's, I mean, I won't lie. It's basically the most flattering, satisfying thing I think that's ever happened to me. There's, there's one issue of uh, Judge Dredd where one of the judges has got a name tag that says Dunce because the artist was listening to it when to Romaniacs when he was doing the thing and that was ultimately the high point of my entire life and I actually bought the original art for that <laughs> what the <laughs> missus did and it now is framed and has pride of place in my house but apart from that it is this and I'm just they I, I'm not gonna lie I mean I I basically buy any I buy that thing anyway and I'd certainly buy the ones that I appear in swearing a lot and talking about badgers or beavers or whatever in terms of the content it is just utter gibberish i don't it has no bearing on anything to do with my life but nevertheless it pleases me immensely it's much it's much like this this podcast i have to say two two of two i've had a million bylines but my two um most favorite uh um occasions when my name has appeared in print have both been on street of shame um and you know that is the that is the, the fun that we have steve do should we try and get should we get you in to hang around for our quiz Oh, let's see. Well, we could see if he if he knows any. Um, we've got so a Scottish-related quiz. We're doing a Scottish-related quiz. This will take only a few minutes, in, because I know you're very busy, far busy. No, no, I'm quiz. totally up for it. I'm totally up for it. I'm going to be shit at this every time I have to do a. Oh, sorry, I swore. I didn't mean to. I knew I wasn't going to last the whole thing. I'm going to be bad at this <laughs> every time I have to do a quiz. I, I fail people terribly. Well, like whether it's a pub quiz or anything else. So I just want that warning out there in advance. That's okay. okay. So we're doing, so we're going to do. 
Um, we get, we, it's five questions. Now, I was a bit upset last week, Steve, because I like to win this quiz. So uh, is your phone working? Because I'm going I'm to text you my answers at the same time that Mr. Dunn says his, because I think okay. I could beat him on this one. Okay, this is good. Okay, no so one question. prepared me for this, by the way. No one briefed me that there was going to be some kind of competition. Well, our vast production staff didn't brief you that there was going to be a quiz. <laughs> it will roll after the recording of the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> okay, let's do it. So question one, and I'm, Ian, you, you, you're going to answer these, and then, and then Richard is going to text me the answers, and then we'll, we'll, see, whether, we'll, see, who is, we'll see who's won. No, um, at the end of this. Up, okay, okay so, so question one. Uh, Willie Gallagher, uh, was, he represented East Fife. He was the MP for East Fife between 1935, 1950. He was the last ever of his party's MPs at Westminster. What party did Willie Gallagher represent? I, I have absolutely no idea. No idea. Richard Porritt? Just hands. He, he was the he was a communist Labour Party, I believe. He was the last co- he was the last communist party MP. This is this is looking grim for grim for the Remainiacs. How do you know? Um, that? How do you know? How do you know the history of 1930s Scottish Communist Party? Well, it wasn't necessarily that. It was just the fact that he was the last. You know, he was he was the the the, the last potential communist lie in Britain. Basically, I think. Uh, question two, what Scottish slang term for a bossy woman did Nicola Sturgeon claim that male uh, MSPs had given her in the early days of the Scottish Parliament? What nickname did they give her? I have no idea. Right, well, I, I do, and the reason I know this is because, uh, not because of Nicola Sturgeon, it's because my grandfather used to call my mother this, and so I, I think it's right. Is it, uh, and I probably shouldn't do the accent, but a, a, a nippy sweetie? It is a nippy sweetie, oh, wow. which is just amazing. <laughs> uh, which two sports still played today were banned by the Scottish Parliament on March the 6th, 1457? 1457? Oh, people to concentrate on archery. <laughs> I, I, just, <laughs> I, I have no... I, obviously, uh, it goes without saying, I have absolutely no idea. 1457, did you say, 1457. James II, Act of, Act of Parliament. Everyone should know this. Right, all right. I, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'll have a guess. Um, okay, so I'll go for ancient sports, let's think. Uh, croquet and... No, no one's ever played croquet in Scotland, have they? Um, uh, golf and um, rowing. Golf and football. Football? Football oh, was invented in 1457. Golf sure. and football. Uh, we're banned, yeah. Uh, which does that, MP, does that make sense? I thought football was invented, like, I don't know, in the 1800s or something. Well, they had it in Scotland first. <laughs> it hasn't lasted there, but they did have it in Scotland first. Uh, question four. Which Scottish MP who died in 1995 described himself in his final entry in Who's Who as uh, an author, forester, painter, poet, TV and radio broadcaster, journalist, dress designer, landscape gardener, bon viveur, raconteur, and wit. He also said, the release of tension which comes from orgasms and sneezing is essential to my sanity, adding, my own sexual energy will burn forever. 
I, I am actually speechless by the words that have just <laughs> just been said. I was I have no idea who the hell that is, and I really wish I did know. Well, I I think I do because I've read his um, uh, autobiography, and I think it's uh, Nicholas Fairburn or Fairburn. It is Nicholas oh, Fairburn, yeah. and, it's, and it's a lot of years since I read it, but it is brilliant. And also, the pictures of this guy are fantastic. Um, check, check him out. He was a, he, I think he had quite, he had a very colourful life actually, Steve, didn't he? It, it's extremely colourful, yeah. But his sexual energy is still burning despite yeah. his demise in 1995, which is oh, good. That is reassuring. Also, he's still steaming away, yeah. He's also probably the only uh, MP to ever comment in the House of Commons on the, the band Throbbing Gristle, who he described <laughs> as being wreckers of civilization. <laughs> Throbbing Gristle are this podcast's favourite band, aren't they? So it's good Very that you got endorsed. We're sponsored by Throbbing Gristle. And can finally, I, can I just get a check on the scores. I think it's I think it's three nil, isn't it? It's not looking good. It's not looking good. For, for, for <laughs> the, the chances of me coming back from this stage are pretty minimal. But you get you do get four points for this answer. So they, so it could oh, still all turn around. Uh, and the question is, uh, Andrew Balfour, who was a Scot- future Scottish Prime Minister, uh, in 1887, uh, he was oh, sorry, he was the nephew of uh, the Marquis of Salisbury, Robert Gascoigne Cecil, who was Prime Minister in 1887, and he made Andrew Balfour, very surprisingly, the Chief Secretary of Ireland. And what phrase that is still used today came from? This appointment. So Andrew Balfour, he was the nephew of Robert Gascoigne Cecil, who was the Prime Minister. Uh, in 1887, he got the job, very surprised, to so everyone's surprise, as uh, Chief Secretary of Ireland. What phrase, which is still used today, came from this um, uh, very, um, uh, very strange appointment? I have absolutely no idea. Ah. Well, I didn't know. I have no idea. I haven't got a clue. No idea. Go on, Steve. It's where Robert Gascoigne Cecil is where the phrase Bob's your uncle comes from. Huh. Ah. He was what? given, uh, it was uh, an, act of, uh, an act of nepotism. He'd, uh, he'd done very little. He suddenly became uh, chief, uh, well, he was basically put in charge of, um, of relations with Ireland, and that's where Bob's your uncle comes from. I'd say that was a convincing win for Ian Dunn, no? Yeah, definitely. I totally sign up to that, yeah. I'm glad I've got this quiz done. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I looked out certainly on on question two and question four, um, but nonetheless, um, Porrit wins. Porrit versus Dunn, it's a a, a three-nil victory for Porrit. (laughs) And and I will be tweeting that, and and I'll be happy to take on the Romaniacs in a quiz on your podcast when I come to plug my book in the coming month. (laughs) (laughs) Ian. What a pleasure, Ian. Thank Absolute you. Pleasure. Cheers, guys. Thank you for having Absolute me. I really appreciate pleasure. it. Thank you so much for coming on. And we also appreciate your wonderful work for us in the, in the print edition. Please come back and do it again soon. Ian Dunn, everyone, thank you very much. Cheers, mate. Steve, that was fun, wasn't it? That was great, yeah. I can't believe he didn't know. I mean, he, he's, he knows how to keep a, ba- a, a beaver out of a tent, but what does he know about, you know, 1887 <laughs> trivia? Honestly. Not much. Um, so, so not much. So, so, so uh, we need to. Uh, we probably need to tie up a few loose ends, Steve. What else has been going on this week? Just quickly, because we've got Matt Withers waiting in the wings. 
Well, I just wanted to send. Uh, I just wanted to send out my best wishes to to Grant Shapps, who obviously went on holiday to Spain, didn't he? And then um, he's. And then as soon as he'd left, they decided that everyone coming back in had, had, would have to self isolate for um, for fourteen days or ten days or, or whenever. And I suppose the advantage with Grant Shapps is that he can self-isolate with Michael Green and Sebastian Fox as well. So it's a sort of three for one, isn't it, if you're Grant Shapps? So that's, so that's nice. Um, did you know, by the way, while we're still talking about trivia, do you know who Grant Shapps' cousin is in real life? Oh, I've heard this before. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember, but I have heard it before. Grant Shapps' cousin is Mick Jones out of, out of The Clash with the teeth. Yeah. Uh, Mick Jones out of the clash with and, and big audio dynamite and Grant Shapps' brother, who is called Andre Shapps, Andre Shapps, um, is uh, was he was briefly in um, a, 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 like a, a full a, a later version of Big Audio Dynamite. That's that's that is quite something, isn't it? Um, but there you go. So Grant Shapps. The other thing I wanted to talk about was um, in this week's print edition of the New European, which features the. Uh, Ian Dunt uh, thing that we were just talking about there, uh, great a, a great piece about um, what's going to happen now with uh, with Scotland. Um, I have written about a campaign to defund the BBC. You'll be amazed to uh, learn. You might even have seen if you live in London, you might even have seen these billboards starting to go up, and it does uh, strike me as a, a sort of tip of a, 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 an iceberg. There, <laughs> billboards are starting to go up. Uh, it's a crowdfunded campaign. They're, they've raised 45,000 quid so far in less than a month. Uh, they want to defund the BBC. Um, and uh, I've written about this at length. A guy, the guy who uh, has, is uh, behind this is a history student called James Usel, uh, or Ugel, I think he's, it's pronounced. He worked for uh, Tom Hunt's um, a successful Tory uh, campaign in Ipswich in 2019. Tom Hunt, obviously a big Brexiteer. Other people who are involved in this are include our mate Darren Grimes. So if you do defund the BBC, I suppose um, that you will get um, interviews of the standard of Darren Grimes' interview with David Starkey. Um, Calvin Robinson is in it. He was a Brexit uh, party candidate, I think, at the... Uh, at the general election, um, uh, he's a teacher. He's recently criticised uh, the BBC for being. He said it's an, uh, become an outlook, uh, an outlook for woke propaganda. And uh, when he was asked to, to name shows that he thought were an outlook for woke propaganda, he, the shows that he mentioned were Doctor Who and Countryfile. So, um, so that's interesting. Liam Deacon is the is the the press officer. He was the press officer on the. Brexit Party's general election campaign, and before that he worked for uh, Breitbart. Um, I don't think that they are going to immediately win a campaign to defund the BBC. I'm extremely concerned that, um, uh, as we've, we've spoken about on previous podcasts, that you know now Brexit is done or nearly done, the minds that brought you Brexit are going to start looking at things like this. There's an element of Brexiteer revenge in there. There's an element of uh, that these being the kind of people who just want to break up um, big organisations, big uh, parts of, of things that have been the, the, the kind of the bedrock of our country, the, the elite and the establishment, as they would call them. I don't think that there, you know, I don't doubt that there is some sincerity to what these, uh, what these people believe um but i do think that um 
you know if um if we're going to get rid of the world service and the bbc's incredible arts programming and stuff like uh well we mentioned fleabag earlier on um uh, i may destroy you we've talked about previously if we're going to put all that in jeopardy because somebody is upset that doctor who is is now a woman and there are some woke moments in country file then i think that would be uh, an absolute scandal um but i fear that it might be something that we are talking about in many many podcasts to come so check that out it's in the i agree completely i just no, i just i just like to say a few things about the bbc if i, if I may steve I, you know the bbc makes me tear my hair out and has for years you know it is true that I've, I remember going to Southwark Crown Court to cover a, um, a, a big court case. Can't remember exactly which one it was many years ago, and I was there on my own doing it for whichever newspaper I was working for. And thirteen people turned up from the BBC. Um, there was someone from the Today programme. There was someone from Newsbeat. There was someone from etc. 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 And that kind of thing is infuriating. But the BBC, if we lose it. We lose so much more than that. And I think they are better at that kind of thing now than they were. They absolutely need to get better as well. And I'm not advocating job losses or anything like that, of course. But, um, but what we gain from the BBC is so important. And also, you know, uh, we're, we're all, whether we like it or not, we're all here in, in Britain and have got a vested interest in it. And the soft power that the World Service has overseas is huge huge beyond any of our dreams, honestly, and what we could imagine. And, and it's really, really important to, to get in our, our, which, you know, I think we all believe in democracy, etc. cetera, um, even though it's been put through the ringer a little bit in the last few years, <clears throat> we all believe that that is the way forward for the human race. And these are big things. And the BBC actually does really well at that kind of thing. So <clears throat> defund the BBC is a nonsense. I am more than happy to pay uh, for Radio 4 alone uh, the license fee that I pay. I think it's an absolute steal for everyone. Um, so there you go. That's me. I, on um, uh, right now, I think it's probably about time. That, um, I, I know I keep mentioning Matt Withers' name. It's actually uh, Niall Griffiths who's going who's to read out uh, this incredible story um, which is uh, also, I think, is it in the, it, I think it's in the print edition this week, isn't it, Steve? It is, yeah. Uh, and, and Matt set it up. Matt's sort of our behind-the-scenes man, and of course you all know who Matt Withers is. Um, and I've got to say that there is music, um, and it, 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 the music is called The Healing, and it's by Sergi, and I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize if I got this wrong, but Sergi um, Kereminisov, do you reckon, Steve? Kereminisov, I think it is. Kereminisov, Sergi Kereminisov. It's licensed under Creative Commons. Uh, this is Niall Griffiths. It's a uniquely horrible experience watching the sacks and suitcases revolve on the carousel and yours isn't amongst them. Those cherished contours and colours of the bag that has accompanied you around the globe are an absence blaring from the belt. It's not only the inconvenience, the sheer pain and the arsonness of it all. No clean clothes, no toilet fees, no books to read or write in. It's the sensation of aloneness in a strange place, of suddenly having no trusted companion. There's an odd sense of abandonment. You stand and watch and hope. And eventually you're alone with the empty shunting belt. So you find a man in uniform and wrestle with him over the language barrier, and you give him your contact details and enter the airport concourse. You have your cash card at least, 
but the HM refuses to give you money, so you call your bank only it's late and you're passed across several departments and it seems time zones until you reach a real human being and you're told of the country you're in is on a finance fraud watch list and you should have informed them that you should have informed the relevant people of your intent to travel there at least a day beforehand. You'll be able to withdraw cash opening a business tomorrow, but you're broke now, but after both Lay and Sterling. But the process cannot be expedited. You must just wait. Sigh. Well, okay. You call your hotel and ask them if you can put a taxi fare from the airport on your account, and you can, so you do. You check in, and you don't unpack because you can't, and you go for a wander, hungry and thirsty, and the bars and takeaways that are still open are maddening to the, to the moneyless. All the unattainable fun around, the lights and the music and the smells and the teeming people and all of it to be discovered and experienced with avidity and glee, but not tonight, no. Your first night in this new city will be a hungry and sober one. A manky-mouthed one, too. The hotel has no toothpaste or brush. But you can bathe, at least, and go to bed clean, if it be peckish and halitotic. The unknown city throbs and croons outside the window. It looks like a good place. The morning brings money. You buy toiletries and have a proper spruce. Except you must put dirty clothes back on your sparkling body. You eat a tower of pastries and drink a gallon of coffee and then visit a department store of a type that hasn't been seen in Britain since the early 80s. You buy socks, two shirts, a jacket. You buy the only boxer shorts available. Elasticated things with the words Mr. Big emblazoned on the, ahem, business area. You return to the hotel and change and then properly hit the city with a step that has sprung like a true Mr. Big. You're reinvigorated, yes, but you're missing luggage as a gap at your side and you wonder where in the world it is, what adventures it might be having. You take a bus to Brown Castle which you've seen in your dreams, the tall white towers in the forest and the conical red raven circled roofs. It's exactly what you expect it to be, as a Sigishwara, with its looming battlements and stores selling Dracula-related tat with which you fill your new pockets, and gaggles of goths milling moodily. You're having a wonderful time. Here, again, is the joy of discovery. There's a costume man with a drum, welcoming people in several European languages, and you teach him the Kamraig, and he beams and adds it to his repertoire. Two days later, and your bag arrives at the hotel. You sign for it on a document that tells you it was diverted to Brisbane, a city in which you lived a long time ago. As you unpack, you fancy that you can smell eucalyptus, and it tosses you a little to think that your sack, without you, has been in a place where you, as a bewildered little boy, last were three decades ago. The world and time shrink and expand like living lungs. So now your familiar clothes are on hangers and your toiletries are all arrayed. You toss up what you've spent so far and convert it to sterling on your phone and you're startled. You spent less than the cost of a packet of biscuits back home. The Mr. Bigs were five pairs for a few pennies and they're what lasts longest. When the socks have gone through at the heel and the jackets come apart at the elbows, the undies still stand strong. Indeed, the elastic on the final pair snapped just last night, years after they'd been purchased. I'll miss Mr. Big. Brexiteer of the Week. Blimey, I like that. That was good, wasn't it? And I like the music as well by Sergei Kereminimini. What was it? Uh, I think it's Sergei uh, Kereminizov. Kereminizov, okay, great. Well, it's, it was look, called The Healing, that. Very the good. He- very good, and thank I you. I feel healed. I feel... <laughs> well, I'm not sure I go as far as I was healed just yet, but I'll tell you what might help me, Steve. A Brexiteer of the, of the Week. week. Yes. Let's talk about the Brexiteers of the week and see if you feel healed. Charles Moore, 
he needs he needs a bit of healing. The, the old Daily Telegraph columnist. Uh, did you see what he uh, he wrote about? Uh, he said basically that uh, persuading the public to follow Boris Johnson's advice on obesity is going to be difficult. Uh, and I think it probably is going to be difficult, but not for the reasons that Charles Moore said. He said it's going to be difficult because, and I'm quoting here, uh, NHS and ancillary staff uh, are often disproportionately tubby, uh, so they're too fat uh, to um, basically to influence the, 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 the public. Uh, his evidence, he said, I recently emerged from a cafe to find my way virtually blocked by an enormously wide youngish woman in a nurse's uniform. It was a vivid reminder of a general fact about the National Health Service. Many of its staff are fat. Um, so, I, I, you know, do we need to discount everything the Daily Telegraph tells us about Brexit, say, because some of their staff are disproportionately stupid? Um, because I think it is a vivid reminder of a general fact about the Daily Telegraph. Uh, many of its staff are idiots. Um, and that, is a true, that, is true, that is true nonsense, of which you, there's no point even getting worked up about that, because it's yeah. just such nonsense. But it is funny, isn't it? And, um, you know, in a, in, when I'm not doing, uh, when I'm not spending time with you, dear listener, on this vanity project, um, I... Um, you know, I have to do actual real journalism. And it is, you know, lots of people have been saying to us this week, oh, Boris Johnson wants us to get fit and healthy, but he's giving us money off Big Macs and KFCs. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a weird one, isn't it? What strange, what strange... Uh, um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, we must mention Mark Francois. This happened quite a long time ago now, but we did mention him before. He is the mayor of um, Westminster's Fraggle Rock, isn't he? Well, he, in fact, his, his official title is the chairman of the respected European research group. Um, the research that he's done on Europe appears to be just watching some old episodes of Allo Allo because um, I heard him on... I think he was on talk radio the other week. He was talking about how Johnny Foreigner would eventually bow down to Bulldog Britain in these EU talks. And he put on... Was a, he pissing by your window? He, 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 exactly. He put on a cod French, uh, French accent, um, a, a René Artois accent, he was called, wasn't he, um, uh, in Allo Allo. Um, when he was talking, he said, uh, Michel, as Michel Barnier says, the clock is ticking. Um, and um, I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? That he's the he's I mean, the chairman he, of the European Research Group. Um, he and think, is talking. <laughs> yeah, he should have done that. The click is talking. Yeah, exactly. Um, there you go. And I, ju I looked up the. I was so outraged by this that I immediately looked up um, the size of Mark Francois's majority to see if there was any chance of us getting rid of this halfway in in the near to distant future mark francois 39,864 people voted for mark francois at the last general election he has got a majority of 31,000 uh, and the 10th safest seat in the house and uh, sadly he is not going away um Gerard Batten is somebody we've not talked about for a while he, i think Gerard Batten is my favorite ever leader of UKIP, even better than Dick Brain and Pat Mountain. Um, he he started, when he came in, in 2018, UKIP had 268 councillors and 24 MEPs. A year later, they had 34 councillors and zero MEPs. Result, I would say. Um, <laughs> he is uh, an anti-masker now, obviously. 
Um, and he's also an anti-vaxxer. And, uh, and this week uh, on Twitter, um, somebody said to him, well, masks are just a piece of cloth, aren't they? And he said, well, they're a piece of cloth in the same way that a yellow star was just a lapel badge. And then he was talking about uh, the, the search for a coronavirus vaccine. And he said, whether you think Bill Gates is a Satanist or not, do you want your DNA altered by a vaccine he has cooked up? Such characters are the modern equivalent of Dr. Mengele. And it's a sound grasp of the horrors of Nazism there, isn't it, from the man who thought that getting into UKIP, that bloke who got fined for training his dog to do the Heil Hitler salute, yeah. he thought that would be um, electoral gold. But the Brexiteer of the week, of course, very predictably this week, is, is Tommy Robinson, because Tommy Robinson, anti-Islam activist, Keen Brexiteer, he said he is looking to relocate his family to Spain after uh, an alleged arson attack on property belonging to his wife. Tommy Robinson's already in Spain on holiday. He says he wants to stay in Spain permanently. He's found schools for his daughters there, and he, he wants to move to Spain. And I just want to remind you that in March last year, Tommy Robinson led a Make Brexit Happen march in support of the end of free movement. And in 2015, Tommy Robinson said of people who seek asylum in other people's countries, they're destroying people's lives. They're going to drive people to far right groups. The best solution is to stop them invading our country. And he said that instead of fleeing abroad, refugees should be kept in camps in their own countries instead, because that was safer. So um, Tommy Robinson in Espana, uh, you are the Brexiteer of the week. And I mean, it's the very definition of irony, isn't it? Do you know what? I think a lot of people listening to this will go, good riddance, let him go to Spain. But do you know what I say? No. Get him back. He's our, he's our dick. We need to own him. And it's only a matter of time before he gets himself in serious trouble. He, he's our problem. It is not fair that the poor Spanish, a beautiful, wonderful country and great people, have to put up with Tommy Robinson. So... If I was Spain, I would kick him out right now. We we will deal with our own pillocks, frankly. Um, Steve, uh, just briefly, and we are almost at the end of this. Well, I think this has been a fantastic podcast, mainly just for me, but um, it has been You're super. Very good. It has been, I have been fantastic today. Um, but I, I would just like to mention, because we love it, don't we, when people get in touch with us on Twitter, leave us great reviews, do all that kind of thing. Twitter is... Something of a cesspit for a journalist and I think for many normal people as well. Um, but Josh Jones Keane was very clever and corrected our, um, our well, your um, error with regards to Woody Allen a few weeks ago. And then last week, we very sadly forgot his name when we mentioned that we were making a correction. So, Josh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for getting in touch with us on Twitter and thank you for your corrections. What should Josh and the rest of our listeners do right now, Steve? Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, and you should have done, it was very good. Um, I thought I was great. Um, mm. uh, please subscribe. Please you were the subscribe. third best, I think. Oh, no, wait a minute. You were the, you were the fourth best. Yeah, I was the fourth best after Niall Griffiths. Yeah. Um, the print edition of The New European is in shops now. It's £3. Uh, you get Ian Dunn, you get James Ball, you get Bonnie Gree, you get Mitch Ben, you get Alistair Campbell, you get you get me. Check it out. If you go to the New European website, www.theneweuropean.co.uk, you can sub subscribe. You can get 13 issues of the print edition for £20, and you get a free Remainer passport holder as well. 
Um, if you go to tneshop.co.uk, tneshop.co.uk, get face masks with a variety of um, pro-EU visuals, the European flag, you can get the message rejoin, you can get one that says uh, you were a Remainer. Um, so check that out as well, uh, tneshop.co.uk. Please join the New Europeans Facebook readers group and you can follow us on Twitter at the New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Who does the merch? Because we should definitely get some T-shirts that say, little bit of bread and cheese. If you would like a T-shirt, yeah. Tell us what you want on a, a New European podcast T-shirt and we will make some. I would definitely, I would wear that T-shirt. I would buy all the stock, uh, quite frankly. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. It's been an absolute joy. Uh, thank you, of course, to Ian Dunn, uh, Niall Griffiths, Matt Withers behind the scenes, Steve, thank you to you as always. If you haven't already, buy the printed product. It's £3, but it's worth every single penny. There's lots of politics, there's lots of Brexit, but there's also tons of arts and culture. We will be back next week, face-to-face, -face, I think, Steve. Is that right? Face-to-face. -face. Oh, brilliant. Hold me back. Mr. Campbell, play your bagpipes. Here you go. Crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.